You are listening to the sermon podcast of Connection Church, a gospel-centered community on a mission to make much of Jesus in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. For more information, visit SiouxFallsConnection.com. Thank you for listening. If you have a Bible, do me a favor, whether it's a smart device or a paper Bible, join me in Matthew chapter 22. If you don't have a Bible, that's perfectly fine. You could probably look over the shoulder of someone in front of you or around you. However, there's also a paperback Bible uh, that's probably under the chair in front of you, and we want to make that our gift to you. Don't be afraid of the table of contents. Join us as we open it. We try to remind ourselves regularly that as we open the Bible, something amazing happens. The Bible actually begins to open us. And so join us then in a journey over the last year and a half. We've been walking through the Gospel of Matthew. Maybe it was two years because we started at Christmas. Two, I don't know. Don't, don't ever listen to me on dates and times. And so we've been walking through uh, the Gospel of Matthew. It's the first book in the New Testament, the first of the four other books known as Gospels. That word gospel literally means good news. That is the the eyewitness, the eyewitness accounts of who Jesus is, what he taught, what he accomplished, his death and his resurrection are for Christians good news. And so as we've been walking through this gospel, we make our way into what, was the, what is the last section of this gospel. That is the last nine chapters of 28. Zoom in on the very last week of Jesus' life. And so he enters into Jerusalem where he will remain, or in the, Jer- the area of Jerusalem as far out as Bethany, where he will remain for the last week of his life where he'll be betrayed, handed over, crucified, and resurrected again. As he comes into the city, beginning in chapter 21, we're introduced to a series of controversies, a series of disputes that as Jesus arrives, he is not immediately welcome. Now, I'll say a little bit more about this later, but to connect the dots, I hope, with the season even that Christians observe as Advent, I think there's some insights for us to gain. That is, we celebrate Christmas as a season. That's not necessarily true. Think of Christmas as the day. Christmas is the day we commemorate the birth of Jesus. Whereas the season we celebrate is Advent, and that's just a fancy Latin word that means arrival or coming. And that's the powerful season for us to think about what it is that Jesus has done. That is, Jesus wasn't merely born. He wasn't just born. Instead, Jesus and the entirety of the Bible describes the coming of Jesus as an arrival. And even Jesus spoke of himself in pretty powerful ways. He didn't say, I was born. He says, I have come. That's when you know you're talking to someone who thinks very, fairly seriously about their own meaning and purpose in life. Uh, if you've ever met someone and they say, I have come, that you might uh, you pay attention. Uh, something really great or really dumb is about to be said. And, and Jesus isn't just born. We don't just celebrate the birth of Jesus, always certainly, although we certainly do. For Christians, it's something else. It's the God of the universe who has come, who has arrived. But make no mistake about it, that season, that, that way that we prepare or think about waiting for God to come is a lot different than what you might think we might find appropriate to celebrate Christmas. That is, for example, when Jesus arrives, when he has come, when he finally steps onto the scene publicly, announcing his presence and purpose starting a chapter ago, it is met with dispute. He is not immediately welcome. Now, as you drive around or, or kind of travel around our city, maybe, uh, you will find 
uh, a quaint little, what we will call a nativity. Even that word sounds great, doesn't it? Nativity. Uh, and a manger in which the Christ child is laid. Now those words have been uh, pretty much Christianized to the point where you, you kind of lose uh, some of, some of the, the powerful uh, meaning behind them. That is a manger, uh, because after Christians started thinking about this, they stopped using this language. Uh, it's a trough. It is a feeding trough. And I might encourage you to start using that word instead. Because we might think, as we look at the little Uh, the little manger scene, we might be tricked into thinking that it's some sort of quaint, welcome, warm, and cozy place for a child to be born and miss that the manger scene is a powerful reminder that as God came to be with his people, he was not welcome. They did not make room for him. And so we begin to see as Uh, As Matthew tells us, Jesus coming onto the scene, arriving in Jerusalem, a preparation that's, I believe, appropriate for us as we contemplate and observe the coming of Jesus to a people that would reject him. So, Jesus begins to tell parables. This is the third of three consecutive parables in this section in which the theme is judgment and the anger and wrath of God against sin. And as you would imagine, those are messages that were not easily received. They were not well received. In fact, there are a series of disputes that build up towards a statement of judgment that will begin in chapter 23. So let's read the third of those three parables put together as a picture of God's kingdom come in a way that's mysterious, powerful, but is also, is also controversial. So beginning in verse 1 of chapter 22, we'll read the first 14 verses together. And again, Jesus spoke to them, in parables, saying, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son and sent his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast, but they would not come. Again, he sent other servants, saying, tell those who are invited, See, I've prepared my dinner. My oxen and my fat calves have been slaughtered and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. But they paid no attention and went off, one to his farm, another to his business, while the rest seized his servants, treated them shamefully, and killed them. The king was angry and he sent his troops and destroyed those murderers, and burned their city. Then he said to his servants, the wedding feast is ready, but those invited were not worthy. Go therefore to the main roads, and invite to the wedding feast as many as you find. And those servants went out into the roads, and gathered all whom they found, both bad and good. So the wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the king came in to look at the guests, he saw there a man who had no wedding garment. And he said to, them, said to him, friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then the king said to the attendants, bind him hand and foot and cast him into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping a gnashing of teeth, for many are called, but few are chosen. 
So many of the sections of text in Matthew's gospel, including today, begin with a question. A question by Jesus, a question by others toward Jesus, and so I've tried to do the same. Here are the questions that we began with last week in a parable in which Jesus illustrates the the power and sovereignty of God and his kingdom come on the earth like an owner who said to his tenants to be fruitful. So I asked that question in this theme of the parables of judgment. I ask it again. Who in your life has the right to judge? Who in your life has the right to judge? Like I said it last week, who in, the right has, uh, who in your life has the right to judge and you don't think they're being judgy? Who in your life do you welcome their criticism? You welcome their evaluation of things. You begin to ask that question, you begin to, I believe, understand something maybe more powerful and true about you than you would have otherwise seen. After all, this is one of the themes throughout the entirety of the Bible. God's being glorified in bringing salvation through judgment. More specifically, even in the parable today, we see an expression of this. Who in your life has the right to be angry? Who in your life, as you imagine it, is justified in their anger and rage? Who is angry and and you're not surprised, but instead you're like, me too, I get it, I'm angry with you. It might be even possible to ask the question, what other groups of people have the right to be angry in your estimation? What political party, what political leader, what ethnicity, nationality, what otherwise kind of group of people or individuals have the right in your mind at justified wrath and anger when you begin to think about that i want to encourage you you're looking into something that you believe and understand about the nature of the world and as abrasive or uncomfortable as it might be the tension that builds in that question it is in fact the exact point of each of these parables to begin to confront us with the possibility that there are things in the world that are wrong, that are out of place, and there is a justified anger and judgment that is right and good as a response. Last week we saw the, that ultimately the, the, the thing that Jesus is holding up as a mirror to confront these people with is a hypocrisy, a, an inconsistency. It started with this passage when when Jesus sees an inconsistent response of a fig tree. That is, a fig tree that was advertising that it's fruitful, but it is not. And yet Jesus, as a a picture of what he has come to do, curses the tree. We We don't usually tell that story about Jesus. But then, if that weren't enough, he begins to, in succession, challenge and be challenged about his own authority. And he holds up this mirror so that they will see the people around them, specifically the religious leaders who were challenging and and a part of this controversy, a series of eight disputes, as we saw, ultimately have rejected God's call, in this case, Jesus' call to respond, to obey, to bear fruit. Jesus says, if you want to know my power, look at the, for example, look at the call of John the Baptist to repent to know that apart from confessing of sin and repenting and turning to trust in God, we're, we're apart from him, we're separated from him. Obey, bear fruit. We saw last week that they're called to be stewards of what God has entrusted to them, not owners, as though they're God themselves, and to receive the son that the owner has sent. And so this week, 
There's a similar theme, master, or in this case, a king, and the wedding feast of that king's son, and the invitation for all to respond. Even more more than that, as the section closes, not just that they would accept an invitation, a call to respond to this invitation to this feast, but to see it as a calling and a choosing. So, look in verse 1. We'll walk through. I think we can see a couple of different, maybe if I were to break it into kind of two different ways of seeing it. Uh, the, first, the first way to understand the kingdom as Jesus is explaining it to us, for us to begin to see the good news of Jesus as Jesus presents it and accomplishes it, even in his teaching and life. This kingdom, I think, as it's illustrated here, can be seen as a, an, a feast with an invitation, but then also a calling and a clothing. A feast and invitation, a calling and a clothing. Let's first look at the feast and the invitation. Verse 1, it says, again, it's talking to them, right? So, so that's a call back to the last couple of parables that he said. He's still talking with uh, this religious elite. The, as, as you can go back to verse 23, Jesus is in the temple and begins uh, a series of disputes that will go on for the next several chapters. But in this case, beginning in, this, in the temple with the chief priests and elders. So again, he's talking with them again. Quite literally, it says that he answered them again. You might not see that in the translation, but again, he answered them. So what's he referring to? We'll go back a verse. Verse 46, it says, although the chief priests and elders, they, were seeking to arrest him, hear the animosity, hear the controversy, hear the, right, see, see, see the manger and the nativity, the, the unwelcome nature of Jesus and what he comes to see and to accomplish They wanted to arrest him. They wanted to get rid of this person, silence this Jesus. But in the end, they were afraid. They were afraid of the crowds because they held him to be a prophet. And that's important because later they know that they don't begin to be brave and bold and brash in their accusations against Jesus until they feel like they have the mob and the crowd on their side. So Jesus answered them, answered them, knowing evidently that they were trying to turn against him. They were trying to stir up some sort of controversy. And Jesus begins to speak a parable. A parable, as last week we saw a similarity. The parable was about tenants. That was a picture of Israel's leaders and neglecting their covenant responsibilities and neglecting God's messengers and even neglecting not just John the Baptist, but the one to which he pointed, Jesus, the Son of God, the Son of the Master and King and Creator himself. This parable, similarly, there's this theme of judgment as they reject also those tenants and messengers. The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son. Lots of layers in here, but let's start with the feast. The kingdom is a feast. The kingdom of God, quite literally then, is a feast in honor of Christ and his bride. We'll come back to this later. This is the theme of the entirety of the Bible. In fact, the first story, the story of what God has created, is the picture of a wedding It's a picture of a man and a woman created in God's image to display to the world something about his character. Everything that God has created in in the first several days of creation gets a benediction, a good word. It's good. He creates uh, the the night, the day, the, the, the land and the sea, and it's good, it's good, this is good, this is good. And then a malediction. He looks at the man he's created in his image and says, this is not good. It is not good that this man is alone. And so the first way that God introduces himself to all the world is with a man and a woman. 
You see almost the language of a wedding feast. It says that God presented or brought the woman to the man. This is a beautiful thing. All women can say that they are God's gift to the world. They absolutely are. And the very first story of creation, the very first revelation or introduction of God's character is that he takes things that are bad, incomplete, and he makes them whole. This is the character of God, and the best picture uh, that we know of is the picture that God paints in the picture of marriage. All the way to, even though brokenness, sin destroys these relationships between God and his people, which are described as a wedding and a marriage. Finally, when all things come together as Christ returns, Revelation 19 and Revelation 21, we'll finish there. I'll give you the, again, why would I, why would I act like it's a spoiler? You have, you have the book in front of you. The, this whole thing ends in a wedding feast. The picture of Christ coming to restore all that was broken. Isn't you and I floating on clouds, playing harps, like shooting arrows? It's feasting at a wedding. Where presumably we feast, eat, drink, dance, sing. You get the idea. Celebrate. So this parable that Jesus is giving us is a picture of the all of redemptive history. It's a feast. And so I want to encourage you or commend this picture to you as you think about what it means to hear and believe and be changed by the good news of Jesus. So for example, if you're in this room and maybe you're not a believer, you're not a Christian, or maybe you're not sure, I'm really grateful you're here. Join us as we contemplate the meaning of these things. To know and experience the good news of Jesus is to experience it as a feast. It's a feast. So, friend, on this nice and early December morning, how much do you look like you're feasting? How much did this morning, or does your life, how, how, how much does walking through the day resemble what you look like when you're at a wedding feast? You get the idea? And that's the powerful mystery of the gospel, that we, in spite of all that is broken in the world, not to diminish it or belittle it, in spite of all the suffering, all that has gone wrong, all the pain and sorrow in the world, we walk around as those who have been invited to a great feast. So stop for a minute. To what extent does knowing and loving Jesus look like feasting and celebrating, partying, dancing in your life? There's layers to this particular king, this kingdom feast, right? It's, the, it's a feast we get of the king. So it's not just a wedding. This will either offend you or you'll love it. It's a royal wedding. Ooh, royals. Uh, now, I'm, I'm not, I'm not going to be very helpful in this particular uh, area. Some people just love following the, like the royal family. Some of you, I know you're like, you just know everything that's going on. I remember when I was a kid, uh, Princess Diana was a, this huge, important person, and, and it was devastating, and it was so sad when she so tragically died, and I didn't know why it was sad. I, didn't, I mean, I, was just, I had no idea. Why, why do I care about these people? I don't know these people. They have nothing, but, but that, that's part of, that's part of the, the powerful thing. That the, the reason the royals are so special is because you're not one of them. And you won't be. You can't be born into that family, right? And so we love to follow those stories. Maybe it's because Disney has kind of latched onto those themes. But otherwise, it's probably because the, the language and idea of, of royalty and kingship and authority and sovereignty of a good family, right? You, well, there's this good family who's making all these decisions for us, and it's great. That's actually woven into the, into the creative order. 
This is what God is like, a king who has majesty and glory and grace for his kingdom. So it's not just a wedding, it's a royal wedding. So this means lots of things, right? Uh, one, it means that the resources in this wedding are a little bit greater. Right? Everybody wants to throw a wedding, everyone wants to have a feast, but there are limits, aren't there? I mean, how big a party are we going to have? We start with a dollar amount, like, well, here, what can we afford? Uh, how many will fit? How, many will, how, many, how, many, how much will the venue cost, and how, much will, uh, how many people will this venue uh, actually fit? And not only that, how many friends do we have that would actually want to come? You get the idea, like, who would actually want to come? And then, if we're going to feed them, it's going to be a feast. How many can we invite? You see, there's limits to this. And so we're already thought, uh, we're, we're introduced to kind of another layer here. Like, oh, no, this isn't just a wedding. This is the king's wedding. There are resources available to us that wouldn't have otherwise been available. So not only the resources kind of give a picture of how great this feast is, also you see it's his son. Not just anyone in the royal family. It's like as if to say it's the, it's the future of the royal family. It's the future of our kingdom. There's, there's a celebration. There's kind of a, there's love in the air, but it's not just that. It's like love for the people that we love, for love for the people that have deep and powerful influence over us. And maybe there's many more pictures, but the last one I'll point out here that I, I think I would commend to you to reflect upon is the guest list. The guest list. So not only in this picture of a royal wedding for his son are you meant to think about the extravagance and beauty, right? The opulence and like, well, this is going to be a really great wedding. This is going to be a great party. You would want to be invited to this party. The second thing I think you see is the guest list. After all, stop for a moment. Who gets invited to royal weddings? And one of the best things you can do in this room is start by saying, not me, uh, unless you have. In which case, I would love to... I would love to hear that story. You what? Because after all, what would that story lead to? How do you know them? How did they invite you? Wow. You get the idea? And all of these things are little bits and pieces of this picture through which we look and see what it means to belong to the Father. To call ourselves Christian is to say that we have been invited to a royal wedding. So again, to what extent do you see your own life? To what extent do you see today, this week, the months and years to come as feasting, celebrating, as one who has been invited to a royal wedding? To what extent is your life marked by criticism? To what extent do you see your life as unfair, unfortunate, to what extent do you see yourself as a recipient of things that you do not deserve that are awful? Friend, those things can undermine the power of this picture. They can undermine our joy in what God has provided for us, namely, an invitation to a wedding that we had no right to attend. So see the good news of Jesus as a feast, a celebration, a celebration of God's redemptive purpose in the world. Think about that this week. Think about that this season. How much joy are you storing up? Not just happiness based on fleeting circumstances, but a kind of unshakable hope and joy because we know where this story goes. We have been invited to a great feast that's on its way. The second thing you see is the invitation. Look at the nature of the invitation. Sends his servants to call those who are invited to the wedding feast 
So remember what I told you, there's an A-list, right? There's an A-list that gets invited to the royal wedding. There's an A-list that gets invited to great feasts. After all, celebrations of feasts is a it would have been a powerful cultural, uh, kind of a pow- powerful cultural picture for these people. The most notable moments in the course of a year or in their own lives would have been marked by feasting. In fact, you see this, the people he would have been speaking to were commanded to feast multiple times in order to celebrate God's goodness. And so it says the servants that God sends out are invited, but the A-list, evidently, the people you would think were going to be there, were not. And yet, you see multiple invitations. Verse 4, again, he sent other servants. They paid no attention. But that wasn't the end of it. Even after he exacted retribution upon these people, what happens? The wedding feast is still ready. The wedding feast has more space, and the people who were invited were not worthy. So verse 9, it says, go and invite more. So see the invitation here. The king, the king throwing this royal wedding The good news that we celebrate, we sing about, we gather in the name of today, the king is gracious, patient, and persistent in his invitation. At multiple points, you would think that the guest list would start to shrink. At multiple points, and we saw this in last week's parable, right? The the master sends to his servants and says, hey, let's, you know, let's, let's profit together. Uh, And they, and they beat up and even kill the messengers that the master sends, and then this absurd turn, he says, I'm going to send him my son. That's what I'm going to do. This absurd turn to demonstrate the patience, the lengths to which the master will go to not exact justice. We see a little bit different here. He does exact justice on those who killed his servants. Now, this is a callback, just like last week's parable. It's a callback to redemptive history, a tradition that, I, say, I said that last week, it's not a tradition, the behavior or pattern of behavior of people throughout the Old Testament, rejecting God's messengers. This, this kind of indictment that God has sent prophets to remind them of his goodness. Don't forget, don't forget the, the God who delivered you. Don't forget the God who saves you. And time and time again, they reject it. And, and you see the, the prophetic tradition is to live a life of suffering, a life of, a life of declaring a message that no one wants to hear. So it's a callback, again, to redemptive history. This is who you are. And the people listening would have known that. Like, oh, he's talking about the people of Israel who have sinfully rejected messengers sent their way. But the the turn is different. He exacts justice upon them. After all, if you send a messenger, an emissary, an ambassador, and that, that one is murdered, it's an act of war. And so you get a picture of that. Even in verse seven, the king is angry. He sends his troops and destroys those murderers and burns their city. But notice this, again, this is where you would go like, the wedding's called off, all right? And yet, in the midst of the war, in the midst of the rejection, the murderous and treacherous encounter that the king's messengers and the, and the people who rejected him, in the midst of that, all, all of that, what does it say he does? Nine, go. Keep inviting. Go keep inviting. I've got a party I've got all of these things ready. Go to the main roads. Uh, That would have been a picture of like the intersection of all sorts of different cultures and classes, all all kind of mingling together. Go invite everybody. So see the celebration, see the feast, but also see the invitation. When we see this kind of invitation, we see the character of God, that, that God invites us. 
And, and this is where you might in, interject, like, well, well, what if I don't deserve to come? What, what if I'm no good? That's a really great question. What does he say you should do? Go out there, verse 10, into the roads, gather whomever you find, both bad and good. See the invitation of this king. It is not based on merit or moral standing. This king persistently, patient, patiently, and graciously invites, come, I don't want anyone to miss out on this feast. I don't want anyone to miss out on this wedding between my son and his bride. I don't want anyone to miss out. Come, join us. And that invitation goes out, even in spite of rejection. So, same as the first kind of observation of feasting, to what extent do you see your own life in light of this invitation? To what extent do you see yourself as a a recipient of an invitation? I have been graciously, undeservingly, been invited into something that God has prepared for me. The Master has prepared, even in spite of all of the other things going going on around. To what extent do you see that as an invitation? But see also the mission of the church through this. This is us. This is the mission of the church. My, my, my great hope and, and prayer for Connection Church and churches, a part of uh, this gospel movement that we've been a part of for 2,000 years, is that every single member of Connection Church would be an evangelist. Now that can be daunting, that can be overwhelming, that can be, uh, that can be very, very threatening, and, and yet notice how this parable restates it. All we are is a bunch of people who have been sent out to invite people into a party we had no, no business being invited to, And it didn't cost us anything to enjoy. See the mission of the church. See even the mission of this moment. My only only purpose in this moment is to extend to you an absurd invitation. A royal wedding is being thrown, and you're invited. You're invited. And if there's any part in you that goes like, well, of course, don't you know I'm friends with the king, right? Like, don't you know who I am? If there's any part of you that would be ambivalent or indifferent, did, did you hear what he said? The people are just like, I've got better things to do. The excuses, even though there's a dinner prepared, it says that the original guest list ignored it. They would not come. Verse 5, it says the second round of invitations says they paid no attention. They went off, one to his farm, another to his business. Now, Ordinarily, we would think of those as fairly good things. Oh, you're a farmer. Good for you. You show up in lots of different parables, right? You're a business owner. Good for you. You're running the economy. These are neutral things, but notice, it wasn't that they existed. It was that these people thought that that was a bigger deal than an invitation that came from the king. Again, look through this parable and see it as a lens to the human heart. Regularly prone to value prioritize and give our lives to things that are nothing in comparison to what the king has offered us in the invitation to his son's wedding. But notice now, not just the feast, not just the invitation, but look at the calling and look at the clothing. See the good news of the feast, see the good news of the gracious invitation But see also the calling. It's visible in the fact that the people you would expect respond and the people you wouldn't don't. So 
the kingdom of God is a feast. We've already seen this. But it's a different kind of a feast. It's a feast where the people you would expect to attend, the A-list, don't. And the people who do attend are not the ones you would expect. So already, remember, we start with a picture. If I told you, like, imagine a royal wedding. Imagine a royal wedding. And, and this is what Jesus does. Uh, remember, I told you, it, these are the paradoxes of the kingdom that, through which we see a powerful truth, right? If I said, imagine a royal, a royal wedding, right? And then whatever you came to your mind, I said, now, throw all that out. <laughs> Everything you just imagined is not helpful. Imagine a royal wedding that is nothing like a royal wedding. Imagine a royal wedding when all of the features of a royal wedding that you would expect, namely more royalty and attendance, right? Big names, important, significant people, none of them are there. And all of the people that are there are homeless, beggars, needy, helpless people. Do you see? You see the paradox? Because this royal wedding isn't like what you would think. The people you would think would attend, we find don't. Again, you're, you're meant to see through this the picture of redemptive history. You would think that the people that Jesus was sent to redeem would have been the most excited to receive him. You would think that the symbols of Christmas wouldn't be a food trough for animals and a, right, and a nativity scene, a stable. At the very least, you would think the symbols of the coming king would be what? Oh my goodness. A throne palace. But this kingdom's different. And the people you would expect to be prepared for it were actually the ones who rejected him. John's gospel begins by saying that, that this light has come into the world. We celebrate at Christmas. But, but the 11th verse of the first chapter, it also says that he came to his own and his own did not receive him. The marks of this kingdom feast is that the guest list is opposite of what you would expect. And not only is it opposite, did you hear that? The animosity, some of the people that you would have expected to show up actually killed the people sent to invite them. See the calling. See the good news of this kingdom as a calling. Being handpicked in such a way that's counterintuitive. So, same question. To what extent do you see the good news of Jesus as a calling? And now most people, typically when they, when, they, when they become a Christian, myself included, they think it's something they're choosing, right? Maybe that's, maybe that's the case right now. You're sitting in this room and, and you're weighing, you're weighing kind of your options. Well, I could, I could not follow Jesus. And then again, I could follow Jesus. And you might be weighing it as an option. But, but I want to look on the other side of that. Everyone who comes to receive the grace of God in Jesus, who gives their life to Jesus, realizes that they didn't do anything. <laughs> realizes that they didn't choose anything. You come to find out, like, oh, shoot, he chose me. There's this powerful, right? And, and, it's, and, it's, and it's, it's a confrontation and a comfort. It's a confrontation because you're like, you mean I had nothing to do with this? I had nothing to do with this? I was like, nope, not a thing. And yet a comfort like, wait, you mean I have nothing to do with this? This is just a free gift? Now you get it. It's a calling. So to what extent do you see your own life as a calling, your own experience of God's grace as a calling that God has graciously bestowed upon you? But here's the last part. It's also a covering, a clothing. 
verse 11, it says that the king began to examine the guests. And then we're, we're given kind of this mysterious turn, as if there weren't already enough. A mysterious turn in the story where he, he, he comes up to a person in verse 12 and it says, friend, how did you get in here without any wedding garments? Now, this is especially important when we get in the next three chapters, but whenever Jesus says something that's mysterious, most of the time it's just, just meant to be a mystery. You're meant to start, if, if, you, if you spend too much time trying to like break it down, you're going to miss the point. So most commentarians would agree there's, there's something going on here, but evidently, especially since the, the first people he invited, uh, or I guess it would have been the second and third wave of people that he invited, came right off the streets into the wedding hall, we're meant to understand here that this kind of wedding was a wedding or a celebration in which the king who invited them provided the clothing for his guests. At the very least, he, it made some arrangements so that now we're introduced to like, oh, not only are the unlikely people invited, but evidently they're clothed differently. They look differently. And so the king goes to examine them and sees someone is like, hey, I, I provided everything you needed for this, including your garments. Why are you not wearing them? How did you get in here? And look at his response in verse 12. He is speechless. And the king said to his attendants, bind him hand and foot and cast him into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, for many are called but few are chosen. Now I want those questions that I began with kind of resonating in your own head right now. Who has the right to be that angry? Who has the right to pass that kind of judgment? Now this phrase, weeping and gnashing of teeth, this is not the first time we've seen it. We saw it in chapter 8, we saw it in chapter 13, we'll see it I believe two more times before the end of of Matthew's gospel. It's, it's this picture, and it's noted by a definite article. It's not just gnashing and teeth, na uh, weeping and gnashing of teeth. It's the weeping and gnashing and teeth of teeth. Like this idea is like, oh, oh, like there's a sadness, and then there's the sadness. You get the idea? This is ultimate judgment. Who has the right to do such a thing? And now you see the gospel, and maybe it's most confrontational, but also I want to encourage you to think, most comforting form. Not only is the kingdom a feast that we don't deserve to be invited to, not only is it a feast that even that we have been invited to graciously, and not only is it a feast that we've been invited to in some sense in a way that is over and against what you would expect, it is also a covering and a clothing. It is a new way of being. You see, it wasn't just enough that they heard the call it wasn't just enough that they heard the invitation or even responded to it. They evidently also had to, had to submit to the order of the party, namely, wear the garments that the king provided. Now again, you have enough analogy here to, to think this through. Enough of you have been to weddings uh, where you notice that people dress up in clothes that sorry ladies and your bridesmaids dresses will never wear again. It's that special after all. Um, and you probably had to buy them. Uh, next time you throw a wedding, maybe consider if you're going to ask your bridesmaids and groomsmen to dress up that way. Maybe consider chipping in on it. I don't know. It could be wrong. You can say it's in, name, in the name of the kingdom, but on the other hand, your kingdom is not God's kingdom, so do what you will. Charge them all you want, right? But you can see it. Right? You've seen people wear clothes at a wedding that, frankly, they'll never wear again. At the very least, they will only ever wear those kinds of clothes at a wedding. 
And so when you look through that lens, you begin to see. The king says, not just come in, and not just I've handpicked you to come in, even in such a way that confounds what you would expect. He says, come in and let me clothe you. Not only will I provide everything you need. I love the language. The fat calves have been slaughtered, right? Again, if you're, if you're vegan in the room, just think like there was also vine-ripened tomatoes. There was, organ- there was an organic fruit spread that you, you can't even imagine. It was amazing, right? This feast, I've prepared everything you need, everything that you would enjoy. It's all here. But not only that, I'm going to clean you up. I'm going to not only invite you to this feast, I'm going to give you everything you need to enjoy it and to be fit for it. So the well, last question. When you think about who Jesus is and what he's done, do you think ultimately that it is something you will clean yourself up for or do you trust that what you will face from here on out is something that God will clean you up for? Let me be brutal and practical. When you got ready this morning to gather with these lovely people, did you think that gathering together would be something that you would do? That you would decide to do? That you would call yourself to do? That you would clean yourself up to participate in? If so, it was probably a nervous event, wasn't it? Or even this morning, did you think about, I'm going to gather with these lovely people because someone else has invited me. I can wear whatever I want because who cares what these people think? I know the approval of the Father is on me. I am clothed in His righteousness. you get it? This theme of clothing is found throughout the entirety of the Bible. This idea that we're admitted into this party, but not only that, we are clothed and equipped. We are set up for enjoyment of this party in every possible respect. This is a theme we find throughout the entirety of the Scripture. The idea that God will come and restore. The idea that God will come and do something. The idea that God will come and grant us something we do not deserve. And that that righteousness, that goodness, that cleanliness. Isaiah 59 says it this way, that, that ultimately God will come and it says he put on righteousness as a breastplate, a helmet of salvation on his head, and he put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak. As we respond to that one that God will send, Isaiah 61 says it this way, that he says, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exult in the Lord for what? He has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress, and as a bride adorns herself with jewels. You get it? (laughs) See the convergence of all these metaphors at once? The picture of Jesus, the prophet Isaiah says that righteousness will be the belt of his waist and faithfulness will be the belt of his loins. A famous passage about putting on these kinds of spiritual clothes in Ephesians 6 says that we would stand therefore having fastened now the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness. You hear it? Clothed in. Not just admitted into, but dressed different. We look different. Paul tells the Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians 5, 1 Thessalonians 5, 8, but since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, 
and for the helmet of hope of salvation. Let your priests be now clothed with righteousness and let your saints shout for joy. Friend, it's not hard to see that we need a feast. It's not hard to look around the world and realize we are lacking. We need a feast. It's not hard to look around the world and realize we need to be invited into something different. It's not hard to look around the world and see also that we need to be called out of what exists. We can't change ourselves. And so it is so good to know that all of this comes with a covering, a clothing. No one is deserving. No one. What allows you to stand before the king as he examines, as you see in verse 11, is the clothing that he provides. But thank God, he provides it. So friend, have you submitted to it? Have you received it? Let me give you two little things to end our time with. Your admittance to the party has nothing to do with whether you deserve it or not. As you look back over that parable, one of the things that stands out, the multiple uh, kind of escalating invitations finally end with like, go, just get anybody. Uh, I love that, I love it. It's like, anybody, any, whoever you find, what if they're bad, bad or good, go. And this is meant to be a confrontation for us, especially those of us who would wish and hope that they are good. Uh, so if you're in this room and you're good, right, you're morally scrupulous, cool, good for you, has nothing to do with the favor of God upon you. And while that comes first as a confrontation, it's also a comfort. Because if you didn't do it, you can't screw it up. Maybe in the room you're bad. Are you bad? Are you a moral failure? Cool. Also has nothing to do with your admittance into God's kingdom. You get the idea? It won't hurt your feast. It won't get in the way. And so look, look at the powerful good news that our admittance into God's presence has nothing to do with how good or bad we may be. You can let go of trying to live up to that kind of standard, and you can receive it as a gift. This means that you get to feast genuinely, really. Um, there's a, Charles Spurgeon in 1888 preached a sermon here. I've heard it paraphrased, and I think I've misparaphrased it, but he's preaching on this particular text and he, and he goes for several different paragraphs talking about how amazing it is that God started to just invite even the bad. He describes them as the beggars. He said the feast ended up, because, because he invited beggars and welcomed beggars, it says the feast was more of a success than it would have been even had there not been opposition because the persons who came to the wedding ended up being more grateful than the first ones invited might have been if they had come. Did you get the idea? The A-listers said no, but ended up making the feast better because the people who showed up were actually grateful. They were actually excited. These poor beggars were picked off the streets. They had not tasted meat for months. Their half-starved half -starved bodies welcomed the fatlings. How glad they were. One of them said to the other, it's such a long time since I sat down to such a roast as this. Now I want to confess to you and invite you into repentance with me. I don't even mind a repentance. It might just be a confession of foolishness. I want to confess to you. I have complained about food at a wedding. I know. And I've never, I've never been charged to be there. I, and I have sat down at a table at a wedding, and I, 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 feel, I confess to you, I have complained, this poultry is dry. 
like, a, like I'm a food critic, right? I have, I have complained, I mean on multiple occasions, about cake and icing. And, and you get the picture here, don't you? You get the picture that the father delights to invite the beggars because the beggars don't complain. Right? The prim and proper food, proper food critics are sitting over in the table criticizing everything that comes out. Not the beggars. The beggars are shouting for joy at everything that's served. Every course is a celebration. Do you get it? Friend, begin to see the invitation. Whether you deserve it or not, you've been invited as a beggar. The joy is even greater. Had the others, the A-listers, shown up, the joy is greater than if they had shown up. Because now they get to gather and celebrate. Friends, see, like a beggar, the kingdom anew. A feast laid out before us. But also your admittance to the party involves accepting the king's clothing. It involves accepting what God alone can provide for you. See the powerful picture that God has not only come to do something for us that we could not, He has credited to us all of the righteousness of Christ, all of the righteousness of God. It's not just a feast, it's also a calling and a clothing. Come, after all. You can only come to a party when you're invited. I mean, isn't that a rejection in and of itself? If someone's like, hey, I'm getting married, uh, next Saturday, would you come? And then you said, no, I think I'll come the following Saturday. Right? You can't do that. See it as an invitation, but also see that the grace he provides is that he actually covers you. It's not something you can do. It's only something that you can receive. And, and again, I, I said this last week, I don't say this lightly, but I do say this as one who is speaking the very words of Jesus to reject the admittance that he alone can provide is to embrace rejection, weeping, gnashing of teeth. It's not that you should or might ought to dress appropriately. It's that if Christ doesn't cleanse you, you won't be let in. I commend to your reflection Zechariah, Zechariah chapter, three, the, chapter 3. The, the prophet Zechariah has a vision of all things broken by sin. In verse 1 of chapter 3, he says, Zechariah has a vision of Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. And the Lord says to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this a brand plucked from the fire? You see, now Joshua was standing before the angel, the angel of the Lord, but he was clothed in filthy garments. Zechariah gets a picture of the filth of sin and how it's made this particular priest, Joshua, the high priest, standing before the Lord on the Day of Atonement, which was the one day he would have been doing this. And he was filthy, and he, he's appalled by it. Because after all, Joshua and the high priest, whoever that would have been, would have spent an entire week preparing, cleaning publicly, not behind a veil, but cleaning in such a way that people would know. He stayed up the night before, praying with other priests, preparing for the priestly duty that he would go into the Holy of Holies and offer atoning sacrifice for sin. They would take two rams, two goats, 
They would curse one and, and impute in, in symbolic fashion all of the sin of the people on one, and they would send them out into the wilderness to wander and die, to be eaten by predators. And they would slaughter the other and take that lamb, that, that, that goat's blood, into the Holy of Holies as a symbolic picture of the sacrifice for their sin. And so, the prophet hears a word from the Lord, Behold, remove the filthy garments from him, for I have taken away your iniquity, and I will now clothe you with the very best pure vestments. And he said, let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments. And the angel of the Lord was standing by. And the angel of the Lord solemnly assured Joshua, thus says the Lord of hosts, if you will walk in my ways, this is this beautiful picture, I will give you right access among those who are standing here. Hear now, O Joshua, the high priest, you and your friends who sit before you, you who are men who are assigned, behold, I will bring my servant who is the branch. Behold, on the stone that I have set before Joshua, on a single stone with seven eyes, I will engrave its inscription, declares the Lord of hosts, and I will then remove the iniquity, here, uncleanliness, impurity. I will remove the iniquity of this land in a single day. And in that day, declares the Lord of hosts, every one of you will invite his neighbor to come under his vine and under his fig tree. Do you hear it? What we celebrate and commemorate in Advent is the coming of a Savior who, even though he was rejected, came to give us the best vestments, the clean garments. And it was a way that was completely opposite from Joshua. After all, Jesus, this priest, came and he wasn't simply clothed and bathed. He was stripped naked. And he was spat upon. He didn't just carry a burden into the Holy of Holies. He carried all of our sin. His last week was being prepared to be rejected, betrayed, and crucified. The night that he stayed up to prepare for this single day of redemption, his friends weren't staying up with him to pray alongside him. They fell asleep. So friend, you hear it? Do you hear the invitation to a great feast? Not only that, the calling to be clothed in the perfect righteousness of Christ. This feast we get a foretaste of. Revelation 19 gives a picture of the feast that is to come. And the lamb enters in with his perfect spotless bride, adorned in his very righteousness, adorned in his very righteous deeds. And the declaration to all of us is, a benediction. Blessed are all those who have been invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. In just a moment, we're going to hear a similar call. In a moment, our, our response this morning is to meet the Lord himself at a table, a feasting table, and someone will declare to you a mystery, the body of Christ broken for you, the blood of Christ poured out for you, and they'll invite you into something that will be maybe counter to anything you've experienced this week. Maybe this week is marked by despair, loss, confusion, difficulty, and failure. And they will invite you to a feast that says, hear the good news. Christ has given everything you need. He has clothed you now in his righteousness. Feast! Feast! Feast like a beggar! <laughs> Starving! 
Now for you in this room, uh, Paul warns us in 1 Corinthians 11, if you're not a believer, you're not a repenting, baptized believer, then, then this feast isn't for you. It'll be a really unsatisfying snack. In fact, it'll be the opposite of a feast. You'll be more hungry than when you started. But for those of us who see this invitation and call to feast through the eyes of faith in Jesus, for those of us who have turned and begun to accept this invitation to feast, for those who have turned and now received the righteous garments that he can provide, it's the most soul-satisfying feast that any beggar could have ever experienced. Let's pray together as we prepare to receive such satisfaction by faith. Jesus, thank you so much that you have come and the wedding feast is now prepared. The bride is your people, the beautiful and radiant city the gathering of your people whom you have perfected and clothed with your very righteousness. Jesus, thank you for this parable. Thank you for what it teaches us. Jesus, thank you for those of us who need it for the warning. Thank you that we get to begin to contemplate that to reject what you have offered to us is to reject the very presence and feasting of God. Might we hear that warning? And so, Lord, would, in this moment, would you help us to begin to admit the ways that we have rejected you and saddled, settled for lesser things? So would you join me now quietly in your, own, in your own words, in your own heart, in your own mind? Would you join me? Confess to the Lord the ways that you have feasted on lesser things, that you have rejected his call, that you have rejected his invitation to belong. Would you join me now just in your own heart, in your own way, confess Admit the things that maybe hold your heart captive, that hold you back from experiencing the feasting joy of Jesus. And now, Lord, would you settle in our hearts as we admit all the ways that we have rejected your invitation, would, would you settle in our hearts an assurance we have been called and by the power of Jesus we have been clothed. All that is broken is being made right. All of our iniquity, impurity, and filthiness has been made new. And for those who confess our sin, you are faithful and just to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Thank you for this assurance. It's by this assurance that we are called and we are clothed to meet with you at the table. Might we now meet with you and experience a transforming grace. In Jesus' name, amen.